Welcome to One Panel Later, where two librarians from opposing fandoms conquer the world of comics and manga. I'm Angela. Kelly? Kelly, this is, uh, this is where you go. You say, hi, my name is Kelly. The number you have reached is not in service oh. at this time. Please check the number and try your call again. Thank you. Oh, no, I forgot. Kelly's not here today. What the hell, Kelly? Hey, guys. Sorry that we missed you. It's been an entire month. A bunch of stuff got in the way. But don't worry, we're back, kinda ish. Um, if you personally know Kelly, you know that she is cursed with a terrible affliction. That affliction is called pregnancy, and it ruins your podcast life and your co host life. Guess what? For today, just me. While Kelly goes off with her like weird bloated feet and baby sickness and weird things like that. In fact, you're not gonna see Kelly as much. I'm going to have a slew of guest hosts that will be coming on with me, a bunch of different perspective on comics and manga. In fact, Kelly will be guest hosting on her own podcast occasionally, just like a rotating cast of characters. Once again, I'd like to warn everybody, babies are evil. So one of the things that I wanted to dive into since it's just the me podcast was a bit of manga. That's right. You heard me. I want to talk about manga. Oh, God, I might die. Um, Don't worry. I have some other stuff that I'm going to talk about American comic book-wise. And really, the manga that I really want to talk about is kind of cheating. It's Batman and the Justice League from DC Comics. But it's actually written by a manga artist. In fact, without Kelly here, I'm free to slaughter all of these Japanese names. And I apologize so, so much. Um, so, Batman and the Justice League, it's written by Shiro Teshiguri, uh, writer of Saint Seiya, and it's been serialized in the monthly magazine Red. I ordered this for my library, really trying to see if there was going to be some sort of crossover appeal. Would people who enjoy DC comics actually enjoy reading a bit of manga, and would the manga kids actually enjoy DC? And hopefully that there would be some sort of crossover. And I read the book, and it is okay. It is weird. Um, only because Superman has like the most gorgeous locks. Everybody's hair is like on point. It, I mean, the whole thing is just kind of strange. You're kind of like stepping into an alternate universe. But what it really got me thinking about was since this book is being serialized in a monthly magazine in Japan, has there ever been a time when American comic books have been serialized in Japan before? And I just chose Batman because Batman's kind of, you know, it's Batman and the Justice League. So I wanted to see, hey, I'm going to look up Batman. And this is the first part of what I really wanted to talk about is, oh my gosh, the crazy world of Batman in Japan got me so excited. Batman comics have been produced in Japan as far back as 1966 during the height of that Batman TV show. You know, the one that's like, pow, bang, the one we make fun of all the time. Hiro Kwanzaa, Kwanzaa, oof. Oh, I miss Kelly. They serialized the first 53 chapters of Batman in the magazine Shonen King, which is fine, except it was lost to all time and only recently discovered it in a book that my library also owns called Bat Manga, The History of Batman in Japan. How crazy was that? These books were reprinted in America a few years ago, so you can actually get all of this Bat Manga, all of this like weird 1960s Bat Manga. I also own that. And it's weird. Like, I don't know if it's actually checking out. I don't know if teenagers are like, oh, look at this weird, campy Batman. I think it definitely has a piece for adults. 
certainly older adults who were like watched the 1960s Batman show. Then Batman was seemingly lost for a while. It took a really long time for anybody to even think about bringing Japanese artists back. In 1996, there was this monthly anthology series called Batman Black and White. I'm pretty sure I saw it somewhere in a comic book, but it didn't really appeal to me. It was a bunch of like short stories, different creative teams, and that was kind of the pitch of it. Like, let's tell uh, eight eight page stories and let's bring in all these fabulous artists. And they did. They brought in like Joe Kubert and Bruce Timm, um, Chuck Dixon, Neil Gaiman even did a story. And so you're like, how does this tie in? Well, it was produced in America, but one of the dream artists that they wanted to work on was the dude that created Akira. And they were like, hey, can you come in and write and draw a story? And he did. So the final story in the final book is called Third Mask. DC also tried to capitalize on some other stuff. There's this book called Child of Dreams, which they were like, hey, can we kind of like get some of this allure of the manga market? Um, and so they worked with Kodansha to serialize it in Japan in some magazine called Magazine Z. Um, it's in a perfect American fashion, like in the way that we can only screw things up because we are Americans. It was produced in Japan by Kia Asiyamiya from Dark Angel. And when we brought it to the U.S. to translate it, we flipped it. That's right. Manga originally produced to be read from right to left and was brought to America so that us Americans could read it left to right. So obviously problematic, right? Don't worry. There's more stuff that DC did to cash in on the manga market. They created a sub-imprint called CMX, and essentially they were using it as a translation imprint for DC Comics. And they were working with someone named Natsume, who did a work called Togari. Mm. I have no idea what that is from, but they wrote a psychological thriller called Death Mask. And quite frankly, I love, love the art here. It's also a darker play. It's like mysticism and murder, all of these like interesting pieces put together. But don't worry, in true American comic book fashion, CMX went bankrupt or closed down in six months. So there was the end of the DC Kodansha partnership. And quite frankly, it hasn't really come back until this Batman and the Justice League book. One of the cool things that DC has done on the animated front is they worked on these two films with Japanese animators. Most of the DC ones are produced using Korean animators, but there were two films, Gotham Knight, which is written by American writers but animated in Japan, and Batman Ninja. Batman Ninja is one of the most Interesting trailers, I think, that I've seen where I was like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, I can't wait. And DC Animated is amazing. Like, all of their DC movies that they do actually turn out really well. It's only funny because they can't translate it to, like, live action. Like, somehow storytelling escapes them. So their animated features are really good. So I still haven't seen Batman Ninja. Even though it was an amazing trailer, you know, you just lose track of stuff. The interesting thing in researching this pod is that I found that there's actually two versions of the movie. All of the animation, for the most part, is all the same. But the Japanese version, which you can get on the DVD, has almost an entirely different storyline because they animated the movie first and then added in the vocals and all of the dialogue later. And in America, it's a little bit of the opposite. They do all of the script writing first, and then they work on um, all of the animation parts. So that when the Americans got the version of the film, they were like, this is not going to play for American audiences. We need to make the jokes a little bit different. 
So they went back through, and it's like a totally different movie. So now I'm really, really excited to watch the Japanese version with subtitles and then watch the American version just to see, like, what the heck is happening. So that's kind of my, like, weird deep dive into, like, Batman in Japan. I kind of want to go through the whole thing. Like, does Superman have as much of a history in Japan as Batman does? Does Wonder Woman? Is it really just Batman that has all of this? So maybe I'll share some of that with you when I get to do my research. History aside, let's talk about some otakus that I know. Well, one very, very specific otaku. And to be honest, it's like Ghostbusters. I don't see a lot of melding of the streams. My manga kids aren't rushing to go read DC, and my DC and Marvel kids aren't rushing to read manga. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Now, that's true of almost everybody. I think Fujoshi's, and you know who you are, you don't care. You're just down to watch Two Boys Kiss, whether you're reading an American comic book like Fence, or you're reading a manga like, I don't know, I Hear the Sunspot. You guys just are super happy that two boys are kissing, and I admire you for that. What I found supremely interesting was that one of my otakus, probably the biggest otaku that I know at the library, came up and said, I'm looking to get into American comic books. What can I read? And he had already read an American comic book that I'm going to talk about and loved it. And I was so blown away by the fact that this total otaku, like, and I mean like this total otaku, This, like, I love Yuri, you should buy more of it kind of a taku, which, by the way, I'm more than happy to get for him, wanted to read Marvel and DC. And it really got me thinking. Kelly is always, always harping about how hard it is to get into American comic books. What would I read? How can I read it? How come you have so many different volumes? How come you have so many different issues? And I thought, without Kelly here, I would give you a rundown of the best four or five American comic books that you could read if you loved manga. Now look, I'm not going to cheat. Well, I'm kind of going to cheat, but I'm not going to cheat in the sense of I'm going to give you an image title because those things start at one and they go to like 50, duh, the end, you know to start at one. I'm also not going to give you Miss Marvel and Squirrel Girl because for the most part, they start at one And they go to 50. It's a new series. There isn't a lot of baggage involved with it. What I really wanted to do is challenge myself by giving you a few books that could get you into the mythology of Marvel and DC Comics. So with that, here are some of my favorites. The first up is The Punisher. Not an easy character to love, mainly because he shoots people in the head a lot. But if you watch the Netflix series and you're mildly interested in a vigilante, then this book is for you. Now, the book I'm talking about is the Garth Ennis and Lawrence Campbell run. This was originally part of the Max line. The Max line, of course, is the more mature comic books, and it was a rebirth of the Punisher. It makes him very clearly a killing machine. As someone who's always enjoyed the Punisher most of my life, his book has started to go off the rails when I was reading it. He was like an angel at one point, or employed by a god. I don't know, with some crazy shit. There's even a reference to how crazy it got in the first few pages of the Garth Ennis run. He was like, I think I was an angel. I was like, no, no. Here's a gun. Here you go. Here Garth Ennis simply explores what makes the Punisher great. Punishing criminals that the law cannot or will not punish. He's like one of the earliest cruel vigilantes that we have. It isn't about his emotional journey. 
It's not about him finding himself. It's about killing a bunch of people in a bunch of crazy ways. Because Garth Ennis loves killing people in crazy ways. He's the creator of Preacher. And if you've ever read Preacher or saw the TV show, it's like super weird. So why do I recommend this to you? There are almost no superheroes. You don't need them. Nick Fury pops in, he pops out, he comes with S.H.I.E.L.D., he doesn't. There's no confusing mythology. There's not all these pieces. You're literally reading about a guy who's probably uh, crazy and who's taking the law into his own hands. Done. It. No superpowers. No origin story that involves, like, getting bitten by a radioactive spider. Just the Punisher. When I was thinking about what is the best Superman story to read, it's hard. Superman, I feel like, is one of those that has a lot of really good retellings. But the one that I chose is the one that stuck out to me the most. It's by Mark Miller. It was written in 2003. It's called Red Sun. And I even think it won an Eisner for best writing or best limited series, something like that. It's, it's a short, right? The books look to answer one simple question. What if Superman had landed and was raised in the Soviet Union? What a fascinating question. One of the books that I really loved, it was a series of books called What If? What if Peter Parker's Uncle Ben hadn't died? What if Mary Jane Watson had been bitten by a spider? What if Superman grew up in the Soviet Union? Which is so funny because Mark Miller wanted to answer this question. He grew up as a kid during the Cold War. Now, this book is an Elseworlds book, so it's, it's kind of a cop-out in a sense because DC doesn't use Elseworlds as set continuity. It means that you can tell all of these different stories and you don't have to worry about people being like, that's not what happened. It's like, who cares? Who gives a shit? This book looks at, instead of Superman being all about truth, justice, and the American way, emphasis on the American way, it's about being the champion of the common man and fighting for Stalin and what's good for the Soviet Union. In fact, it's so the opposite that because of Superman, the Soviet Union is strong and the U.S. is a society on the brink of chaos. What makes this book so enjoyable is that all the characters are flipped on their head. You don't need to know about a confusing mythology of Batman and Wonder Woman when they come into the book because they're creating their own mythologies for you. You don't really need to look at, like, why would this person be here? Well, how does that pop into the story? Like, you might miss little things that are more fanboyish anyway. Like, haha, Lex Luthor is still trying to do this thing. And that maybe happened in issue 432, and it's a subtle wink, wink, nod, nod. But I never miss any of those moments. What's fascinating about this book is that even though Superman isn't born in America, he's not raised by Ma and Pa Kent, it really is a Superman story. It really is about who he is at his core, about really caring for human beings around him, for really not wanting to use his powers in a way that destroy. And I think that's the essence of what Superman is. And it didn't matter that you took him out of America. And that's fascinating. And, and I think when you're done reading the book, even though it has so many different things, so many weird pieces to it, it's still at its heart telling you who Superman is. For those of you who are actually interested in what the heck this otaku was reading that could make them say, hey, I want to read some more Marvel and DC, the first book they picked up was a book called Batman the Long Halloween. 
one of my favorite books ever written. It's by Joseph Loeb and Tim Sale, an amazing creative team. Tim Sale's artwork is gorgeous. It was created in 1996, and it's basically a love letter to mobster movies and like noir films. He has this like exaggerated style and simplified color palette that makes it I don't know, just this book that I have remembered for years. And and maybe that's because Tim Sale is just this this artist whose style you always recognize and maybe you love it and maybe you hate it, but it's memorable. The book itself centers around Batman and District Attorney Harvey Dent's hunt for the holiday killer. I mean, basically they kill people on the holidays. So like each new issue was about a new holiday and a new murder. But the backdrop is all gangsters and murderous families. In fact, the opening scene is so similar to The Godfather where you're at a gangster wedding for the Falcone family. You're like, wait, am I actually reading The Godfather or is this a Batman book? The book was so influential that the Dark Knight films, the ones, you know, that Christopher Nolan did, a.k.a. the only good ones DC has ever done, he ends up writing... um, kind of an intro to the whole book when they release their later editions. For him, in particular, was the characterization of Harvey Dent. And if you remember those Chris Nolan films, you feel for Harvey Dent. It, like, rips and tugs at your soul. There's that saying, what is it? Um, He says, you either die the hero or you live long enough to see yourself be the villain. And nothing is more exemplified than in this book, One Man's Transformation. The book itself falls in continuity somewhere after Batman Year One, which, let me tell you, Batman Year One is the first year that Batman was Batman. So because this is kind of Batman's second year of being Batman, there isn't this huge mythology that's been built up. There isn't a ton of things where you're like, oh my gosh, how can I, like, know what happened? It's new to Batman, and so it's new to us. His relationships aren't as solidified. There isn't as much history. And in fact... This book is such a great jumping off point because it takes a look at other things. Like you could read this book and then when Loeb and Sale team up for like Catwoman When in Rome, one of the better Catwoman books ever written, you get that same sense of nostalgia that you got when you were reading this book. And when this book ends, you feel your heart clench. It's one of those you have an almost visceral reaction and you're sad and you're hurt and you're really looking at it like, I have to reread this book all over again. And I I want to see it with a new set of eyes. And that, when you reread it, only makes you sadder. The next book up is from Marvel. It's Hulk, Planet Hulk, which was originally produced in Incredible Hulk. So the Incredible Hulk's going along, and this is one of those large arcs that's more in continuity. When I'm really talking about something like Batman or Superman Red Sun... Those books were done outside of continuity-ish. This book was very much in continuity and led to so many big events. This tale needs very little to understand very quickly, which is, I think, why I like it so much. The Hulk's friends basically are sending him away to a planet to protect Earth and himself. And so you don't really need to know much about why his friends are doing this, other than, like, sometimes smart men are very afraid. And you don't need to know that the men involved are Tony Stark and Doctor Strange and Professor X. Like, that's all a little bit of extra on the cake if you want to go digging. And there's books called, like, The Illuminati that tie into this one. But basically, 
the Hulk has one page intro and then you're like, boom, into this brand new story. The only other superheroes that ever appear is, is the Silver Surfer. And you can kind of figure out who the Silver Surfer is through context. It's such a long arc that you don't necessarily need context to who the Silver Surfer is. In fact, this story arc is so long, I think it's like 200 pages. And in fact, if you read the volumes that come after, there is a massive collective version that's almost 500 pages. It's definitely a read if you want to get into it. What I enjoyed about this is that I don't normally read the Hulk. He was a character that I did not like, dislike or like, that I didn't necessarily not read. I had a mild passing interest in him, a few comics here and there, until I read World War Hulk. And what followed was this epic and moving tale. It's, it's about betrayal and redemption and love and ultimately what loss does to a person, how it tears you apart. It's one of the most fantastical comic journeys I've ever been on. My disappointment with Thor, uh, Thor 3, Thor Ragnarok, is that they only took the very smallest bits of what is one of the best stories ever told about the Hulk. Here's the Hulk. He's on a planet. He's a gladiator. Okay, cool. That's really nice. That's like 40 pages of this book. You don't see any of this emotional journey. I mean, they hand at the pieces of the Hulk finally feeling valued and finally feeling a little bit of satisfaction and love, but like, it just doesn't capture the essence of what it means to be the Hulk and what it is to suffer such a betrayal. Up next, Spider-Man Miles Morales, or AKA the Ultimate Universe. Should I be proud of Marvel? Should I not be proud of Marvel for this one? They took a character who was black and Hispanic and finally gave him his own book. But the book was out of continuity. The whole Ultimate Universe was basically Marvel giving Michael Brian Bendis, who is one of the most fabulous writers everywhere, and they said, here, create a Spider-Man book that sits outside of continuity. Reinvent him for a whole new audience. And the book was so popular that they reinvented it, and then they reinvented Ultimate Captain America, Ultimate this, Ultimate that. But I don't know if I'm super excited about Marvel. It took them years to pull the trigger and implement a character of such diversity. There's so much racism and bigotry involved in the character. Um, Sarah Patchouli, who took inspiration for Donald Glover for the character's look. I don't know if any of you have heard this story. Donald Glover was on Community, and he wore a Spider-Man costume. It was very quick, very fast, and... People later took to Twitter when they were talking about, hey, we should do a new Spider-Man movie. And someone was like, hey, let's let's have Donald Glover be it. And Donald Glover was like, oh, my God, I love Spider-Man. Spider-Man, Donald Glover for Spider-Man. Donald Glover does this really funny bit where he talks about the sheer amount of hate that he got. That it was one way or the other. He says, it's like, yay, Donald Glover for Spider-Man. And the other side was like, kill him. He's not white. Kill him. And how terrible that is. And and I think that's why sometimes I have a few problems with the fact that Marvel was like, here's your diverse character. And hey, by the way, we're safe. We didn't put him in a book that has continuity. We, we hit him off to the side. So the Ultimate Universe stands outside of continuity and allows you to learn about specific characters without years and years and years of backstory. In fact, they're modernizing it. They're giving their own twist. And even though the Ultimate Universe had many years of good publication history, 
when Miles takes over, you're essentially learning about things through his eyes, which makes his arc so great. Even though the Ultimate Universe has been going on, Miles sees things in the same way of this fresh perspective. He doesn't know about this villain. He doesn't know about this one. And in fact, many of the villains that you meet are so much different than they are in a traditional Marvel setting. The tough part is that Miles did well enough to survive the cancellation of the Marvel Ultimate Universe, and he's now incorporated into, like, the canonical Marvel Universe. And there are multiple books out there trying to help you reintroduce the character of Miles, like getting you to know him, without necessarily having to read all of Ultimate Spider-Man. But you could also go through Ultimate Spider-Man because it's really good and because it's Michael Brian Bendis. In fact, Spider-Man Miles Morales, that whole run is so great to read, especially if you're coming off one of the best movies ever, Into the Spider-Verse. Quite frankly, it was my favorite movie of last year, and I think that a lot of you might have seen it with me, and if you have it, you need to run out and see it right now. Miles Morales is the best, and I'm hoping that the popularity of the movie keeps Miles in our purview for quite a while. So I didn't want this list to be all dudes. But that's also really hard for me. If you're going to take away Miss Marvel, if you're going to take away Squirrel Girl, heck, I'm not even giving you Captain Marvel because her run is oddly convoluted as well. Then what female character steeped in years and years and years of continuity can I give you? And that's really hard because the only one there is is Wonder Woman. And I don't like Wonder Woman. Then I read The Circle by Gail Simone. Mercedes Lackey does this introduction to the graphic novel, and it's so spot on with why I don't ever enjoy Wonder Woman. Her history is like eight different things, and she's like this simpering young girl who like can't wait, like chasing after Superman, or is campy and not taken very seriously by the men around her, or she needs to chase after a man. It's ridiculous, quite frankly, and I love that an author like Mercedes Lackey was like, no, girl, it's ridiculous. So that brings us to what Mercedes Lackey and I consider one of the better Wonder Woman stories. It's called The Circle. Terry Dotson did it in 2009. When you read the story, you can tell that there's a few places where you're missing a few details, but not to the point where you can't piece it together, or even where it's like too overwhelming and that's kind of fine. I, I'm okay with missing a few pieces, as long as I can get what the story is, and I don't feel overwhelmed and weird about it. And most of that mystery just surrounds the Muscaria, which is, you know, Wonder Woman's home where all the Amazons live. And the only funky part is, like, why aren't the Amazons there? So it's, like, weird. There's something that's gone on previously. But it's fine. The nice part is there's not a lot of superheroes here. And, in fact, I don't think that there's any superheroes. There's Nazis. I love when Wonder Woman hits a Nazi, so this book fulfills that for me. Quite frankly, the book goes on for about three story arcs. You don't really need three. You can just maybe read the first hundred pages. The book itself is a really nice interplay between Diana Prince, who's Wonder Woman, and her mother. The book centers on like what it's like to love a child and what it's like to love your mom. And I think we can all relate to that and really appreciate that. There are two books that I thought about recommending if you're more adventurous. I'm not going to super go into them. 
But DC The New Frontier and Hawkeye My Life as a Weapon are also really great books to jump into. The continuity is a little bit more, you're missing a few things, especially for Hawkeye. Uh, if you don't know, Hawkeye's the guy in the Avengers who has the bow and arrow. It's kind of a loser. But in the book, it's actually kind of funny what it means to kind of be a loser superhero who fights with arrows. DC The New Frontier is gorgeous. Darwin Cook, may he rest in peace, does this really amazing 1950s style art that's fun and colorful and it's all about like McCarthyism and superheroes in hiding. And because it does the same thing of going back and not being directly involved in continuity, you can have a lot more fun with it. There were three books that I really wanted to tell you about that I really thought any otaku could go read. And I think that maybe after you've read everything else, maybe after you've really become interested in Marvel and DC, these are books that you can pick up. The first one is Black Panther, the Tahihisi Coates version. I know it's weird to put that on here. He writes novels, but the hard part is it's word heavy. It's by someone who wrote, writes prose and now he's writing a comic book and he's really getting his feet under him. The other part is they really asked him to come in and clean up some stuff after a Secret Wars event. And so you feel like you're missing a lot more. The other book is All-Star Superman. But I think the tagline says it all. Doomed planet, desperate scientists, last hope, kindly couple. It's kind of a love letter to Superman. And I really enjoy the art style that's done. I think a lot of people might be turned off on it. And it's really a seminal work in Superman's history. The hard part is, it's a seminal work in Superman's history for people who already love Superman and who already love what this character is and can appreciate the campy nature of some of the characters. But it's really not the best book if you're jumping into a Superman story. My final book is Vision, More Than a Man. I think this was my favorite book of last year. I love it so much, and I want you to read it. But I also... I'm totally cognizant of the fact that you do have to get over you're missing some of the pieces. And there are these short interludes of Scarlet Witch where for like two pages, you're like, who the hell is this bitch? And you don't really know what's going on. And so I know that that's really hard, but I think that the book and the story, this love letter to what it means to be human and what it means to love through a robot android's eyes is so worth it. But you know, Maybe after you've read a few more other books. Thanks for listening to One Panel Later. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. Check out our website, onepanellater.com, for a list of show notes and all the books that we mentioned here.